each of us have come to be on a spiritual path and this spiritual path because we have some deep intuitive sense or understanding that on this path or on the spiritual path that we've chosen, we can become better human beings. We have some heart-based intelligence that this particular path will lead us somewhere, will lead us more deeply, more surely into a place of that certainty within ourselves. We know that, uh, somehow we know that it'll benefit us because we've seen that it benefits others. This is faith, and it's what I'd like to speak about this evening, faith and aspiration. Each of us may express it differently, but when it comes to simple language, we come to the same conclusions, really, or we might say the very same things in different ways. Faith is like a combination of a wholesome kind of yearning, It's a combination of that with an aspiration to fulfill that yearning and then a willingness to take the steps that are necessary to fulfill that yearning. This is faith. Of course, it takes more than that. It takes somehow knowing deep inside that it's actually possible to become a better human being to become better in ourselves, and to share that with others as well. Some of the ways that I hear it expressed and that I feel it in myself is that I can understand sometimes, and uh, actually in a way that's unshakable in myself, that it's possible to be really peaceful more and more to be peaceful beyond the comings and goings of life. No matter what happens outside, no matter what happens inside, it may shake one up a little bit, but it's possible to come back to that deep abiding peace. We may say it in ways that perhaps we have a yearning or an aspiration to just be more content with how things are, to be okay, to be deeply easeful in our hearts about how things are unfolding. That deep sense of ease that can take the comings and goings of life without a feeling of so much inner bumpiness that it throws us off course. Of course, we do have inner bumpiness, but it doesn't always need to throw us off course. For example, one can enjoy the moments of happiness and joyfulness in life without grasping, without holding tightly, without trying to hold on so it never goes away or chase after it when it does go away, or being addicted to it. We can let the joy come, we can let the joy go, and we know that things change. We can also allow the unpleasant experiences to arise, to do their changing nature, to pass away when they pass away, and not to add any more to it, not to resist, not to push away, not to add aversion, or whatever we do add that causes is, is really the cause of suffering for ourselves. 
we may yearn and aspire to be more and more free from the inner ways and the outer ways of life, the patterns that cause pain to ourselves and to others. A lot of us are devoted to stay on our path because we see how much pain it causes others when somehow aversive tendencies or clinging tendencies come in our behavior, in our speech. But however refined, articulate, or general you are about your aspiration, explaining your aspiration, it's really important to know what your aspiration is, to um, articulate that to yourself over and over again, to acknowledge it, to recognize it. It's one of the most conscious intentions that we make in our lives that has such great importance and long-range importance in our lives. So not to know what our aspiration is, it's like, you know, when you don't know where you're going, but any path will take you there, as they say. My experience of the word aspiration in a spiritual sense is it's not about having a fixed goal, really, but it's about having a direction, a direction in your life. A fixed goal is limited to what we understand now. But we know, we all have experienced in our spiritual lives and our lives in general that things change, our understanding of life changes, and what we thought was so profound maybe 10 years ago is not so profound now. There are more doors open to us, more doors of understanding, deeper wisdom that our hearts can attune to, can reach for. Aspiring towards spiritual awakening is such a dynamic process, and it's ever-deepening each day, each year, each moment. I think for me, I've begun to know more and more sensitively what, leads, what really leads to happiness, what really leads to peace. And I see that the direction of my path is, is in that direction, And I constantly do my best to take that path. I see that I've become more and more sensitive to know what leads in a direction that isn't towards liberation, that isn't towards that deep peace. And sure, I make mistakes sometimes. I fumble. I take the wrong path. But as quickly as possible, I realize that this doesn't lead to peace. It leads to harm within myself and harm towards others. And so, refraining from taking that path. And I, so I know the direction more and more clearly. We know not to go down the pathways or the path that leads to more harm for ourselves, for others. Intertwined with our aspiration is some faith that we can actually do that. Because We have this faith because we see ourselves doing it more and more often as we're on the path. When we remember back to how we've done our lives, especially as we've grown deeper in the Dharma or whatever path you are basically on, uh, we see more and more that we actually take the path that leads towards harmony, 
we refrain from the path that leads towards harm. And so we can really have faith in, in ourselves when we uh, reflect on that. It is really important to reflect on our own lives and how far we've come and where we are now and in recent years, how much we've learned, how much we've deepened into. It's said that faith is regarded as a hand because it takes hold of profitable things, meaning whatever supports our well-being. These are the profitable things. It's said that faith is an energy that seeks the good, that seeks what's profitable, what's beneficial. In order to accomplish our Dharma aspiration, it's said in the text that faith seeks out spiritual friendships. It seeks out hearing and reading the Dhamma. It seeks out opportunities to practice the Dhamma in daily life and taking time when we can to practice in this way, this kind of more intensive way where we get such support. Sometimes people say, I want to be free, but that's just another desire. That's just something else I can cling to. But the energy of seeking, which is the energy of faith, seeking spiritual friendships, seeking hearing the truth, seeking opportunities to practice the Dhamma, this is not the desire that leads to suffering. This is the energy, the the aspiration, the direction in our lives that leads to the end of suffering. So that's kind of a a misunderstanding of the phrase, I want to be free. It's not the desire that leads to suffering. Faith is the energy, the seeking out, the direction towards the end of suffering. The word for faith in that ancient Pali language that the Buddha's teachings were recorded in. This word is sada, sada, uh, S-A-D-D-H-A. It means to establish trust. This is a characteristic of faith, to establish trust. It doesn't come from a heady kind of intelligence, this trust. Whenever we think of trust, usually we think, It's coming from our heart center. This is where we feel trust in ourselves, in others, in the teachings. So the characteristic of faith is to establish trust. It comes from some confidence that we can trust our hearts, that we know really what leads in the right direction. We know what hurts ourselves and hurts others. I've heard Sharon Salzberg, one of our beloved Dhamma teachers, say over and over again that sada means to place one's heart upon, to place one's heart upon. So we learn to establish trust in three basic areas, it said, of this path of practice. So I'd like to talk about those areas. We learn to establish trust in the teachers we've chosen to hear the Dhamma from. We learn to establish trust in the teachings. And most importantly, I feel, for my own life 
in this Dhamma has been to establish trust in my own ability to walk the path, to do the practice, the potential to awaken. That takes really being aware of myself. That takes really being aware of yourselves. And this is a practice that we're doing. We can't just have faith in ourselves if we don't really know where we're coming from and know that we can overcome some of the challenges that we come across in opening our hearts, training the mind. When we're here and when we do our practice at home, we open to the hard bits of life, of course, the challenges of our hearts when we open to the defilements within ourselves and we see them in the world outside of us. And over and over again, we know that inner terrain. We know the parts of our hearts where we're really vulnerable and we give that more support. We know the parts of our hearts that are really strong and we try to come from there more and more often. We try to call that forth more and more often. We remember that. This is really important. So by knowing our inner strengths, we gain more faith in our ability to practice, in our ability to open to the Dhamma, to realize the deep truths of life. Sometimes when I'm going through some hard times, I just, of course, in the past, not so much now, just wanted to give up, couldn't continue. But because I did continue, and because I could look back and say, the heart was strong, of course there were feelings of weakness sometimes. But in the end, the heart and mind were strong, and it got through that time. And I learned what to do during certain uh, challenges that had to be overcome in my practice. And I'll go back and do those things again when they come up over and over. So all the ways that are big and small that are in the course of our practice that we uh, learn to open to and to overcome, these are all so important to remember them and mostly to remember that we're here now. We, we come back again. We've overcome uh, certain hard experiences, and we really know how to do that for the most part. Early on in my practice, it was one of the first long courses that I took. Um, I think it was with Upandita in the 1980s. It could have been in Australia or at IMS. I forget the place now. But uh, there was such pain in the body that it felt like my forelimbs were tied to four horses that were going in all the opposite directions. And especially during the walking period, I felt like my limbs were being pulled off the body. And I wasn't trying to interpret it anyway. I was just staying with the actual pain in the body. Sometimes I'd be doing the walking practice and I would just kind of fall on the ground not feeling that I could go further. And when I would went to report this to Seda Upandita, of course he 
he did his usual listening very carefully. And when I heard the translator translate to him what was going on, um, and also I said I couldn't go on anymore. You know, I wanted to go home. I kind of fell on the floor like a puddle and said, it's, it's time, I can't keep going, I can't keep doing this. So there was some encouragement, but I think they didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I, it was, he had to come up with something more than just be mindful. And that, <laughs> that just wasn't happening. So the translator, who was this Nepalese monk, Unyanaponika, got up and started pacing, said, life is so, there's so much suffering, there's so much suffering. And then when he finally came back to translate something to me, he said, what you should do when you're walking and you have this much pain is to mindfully stop, to mindfully bend over, to pull up your socks mindfully, and then to continue. (laughs) And I thought, I said, okay. You know, I just kind of believe that with all my heart. I would take anything. As, an, as direction in my practice. And you know, from, from that day on, I still do that. I still remember, <laughs> oh, when it's hard, I'll bend over and pull up my socks. And, you know, just a little tiny break for myself, mindful break. From that, you know, there was a lot of faith that came from, from that. That practice during that time was, it, it brought me to a point of um, a lot of faith. So I'm sure you have your own stories of overcoming these challenging times. And if you look back and see how much strength you've gained in your own hearts, you, you would be amazed at yourself. It's good to highlight the confidence and the trust that we gain in the practice. Because oftentimes what we highlight is that we can't do it. Um, With the lack of faith or the lack of confidence in ourselves, the doubt in ourselves, what we can often go to is pity. And this is something to watch out for in practice. First of all, to watch out for doubt. Doubt in oneself is the most debilitating experience that we can have, one of the most debilitating experiences that we can have. So to offset that, to balance that, it's really important to reflect on the faith you have in the Dhamma, in, uh, in maybe a teacher that you have, or, or remember the faith you've had in yourself and you've just kept going. I wrote because I thought about it in the moment. Faith in myself is the ability to do what needs to be done at the time. And so to have that intuitive wisdom that we know what we should do at this time, where is the balance that we need to have, as Winnie talked about last evening, it usually comes to finding a place where we can balance our energy and our concentration and uh, look to... Uh, places where we can find strength in our practice. When we don't have a teacher and uh, nearby, which is often, you know, sometimes people look at us as 
teachers now, and you hear in the Dhamma talks about our teachers, people often think, oh, I want, I need to have a teacher like that that's perhaps kind of thinking that teacher's always been around, Manindra and Upandita, but that isn't so. We would go to these teachers maybe every year, every few years. With Manindra, I might have some letter writing with him. He would come to stay with us once in a while. But most of the time, a teacher wasn't around. We had to take the teachings and really ingrain them in our own hearts. And it said that, you know, a lot of times in our practice alone, there's a lot of suffering, of course. And what I found out was a lot of times with that suffering, the heart would open. The heart would just kind of break open. It would be breaking, in one way to put it, but it would break open. And when the heart breaks, the teachings that we've placed upon our heart just drop in. We really understand them when they're suffering and when our hearts open. If we keep the teachings available nearby, it doesn't have to be a teacher. But what we have heard and learned from teachers and readings, it can just go into our hearts in a way where it's really accessible. We can use it immediately. So because of suffering, when our hearts break, our hearts open, the teachings can really fall in at that time. So we can be really grateful for the suffering that we open to because it also opens to the teachings. So many times what we read and hear of the Dhamma makes perfect sense. We can have faith in the teaching because when we hear it, like someone said recently or a few years ago said, The Dhamma is advanced practical sense. It's really advanced common sense. We just understand life more and more deeply. And we start living in alignment with what we understand rather than fighting it. So even though these teachings come from more than 2,500 years ago, we still can apply the principles here and now. We still can... Uh, understand them experientially. When we hear the teachings, take note of how it clarifies your understanding. It said that uh, these, these are the manifestations of faith. It clarifies our understanding. It imparts confidence. Because, of course, when you hear the teachings, it matches up with some experience that you've already had. Perhaps you've understood it through your own experience and you say, that's right, that's true. It enables us to enter into something previously unknown. When we hear something, it lines up with our experience and somehow that lining up with our experience opens up to something altogether new and different, something that gives us more strength The Buddha said, faith is like setting out to cross a flood. Setting out to cross a flood. The flood of greed and hatred and delusion. That's the flood. So these are all descriptions of the function of faith 
to clarify like a water clearing gem, the gem that's placed into the water and all the residue, all the, the mud in the water sinks to the bottom so one can see more clearly. Faith overcomes the hindrances. Sometimes you see in your own practice when a lot of hindrances or one or more are coming up in a strong way. And the faith to be with it, the faith to just keep going, to take that next step, to take that next moment, to take that next breath, is stronger than the hindrance, is more powerful than the hindrance. The confidence in oneself and in the Dhamma is so strong that it overcomes the hindrances. It helps us to continue on the journey to keep crossing that flood of greed and hatred and delusion inside of us and outside of us. But with the teachings, sometimes I must admit that there were times in the past when I didn't understand it all when Manindra would talk about dependent origination, for example, or he'd show me all these charts about the Abhidhamma and he would talk about the anatta or not-self characteristic. I would just take it in, I would just let it in, not understanding it, let him know I didn't understand it, but he had so much patience with me. And I would hear it over and over and over again. I just had to be patient. He was kind of like uh, mentoring that patient patience for me because he was patient himself. And there was a certain time when, for example, I heard the, uh, the Dhamma talk on the five aggregates, aggregates so many times. And after experiencing over and over again in my own practice how those came up, seeing them arise and pass away, understanding or experiencing the not-self characteristic about each one of them. When I heard the talk, probably for the 10th or 12th or 15th time, it really occurred to me that I understand this. This is what they were talking about. This is really understanding the five aggregates experientially. Upandita would say, the path to freedom is paved with patience. Sometimes it takes a long time to understand the teachings. And when we really get it, we get it from the inside out. It's said that faith manifests non-fogginess and resolution. There were times when I know what I could be clear about. And it's important to know what you can be clear about in your practice. It's important to know what you can't be clear about now and let it be because in time it will become clear. That's what we're not foggy about. That's what we don't doubt. We just have patience and confidence that the time will come. It will unfold in a way in its lawful unfolding that the Dhamma will be understood. And somehow that kind of non-fogginess gives us the resolution to keep going, the resolve to, we've come this far and we can resolve to just keep up with the next step. One of the proximate causes for faith to arise, it said, 
is something to have faith in. Something to have faith in. So I've talked about faith in oneself, faith in the teachings, which have never failed me, and now faith in our teachers. Just want to talk about that a little bit. As Steve said the other night, it's really important to hear the Dhamma from people, from people that we can trust, from teachers that are offering the Dhamma in a way that we have a trust that there's been some experience of the Dhamma. It's not just coming from a heady knowledge or from reciting something in a book. Manindra would say, although Manindra would say, you can learn from every side. And so, you know, I've learned that, of course, when I've turned the mind to hearing teachings from uh, the Christian uh, religion, which actually I came from, Catholic uh, background, and from other philosophies, indigenous philosophies, I see that a lot comes together. A lot is true. A lot can feed into my own understanding of the Dhamma. You can learn from every side. It's good to keep open. He would also say, one time I approached him about a certain teacher who was um, kind of getting a bad rap, and he knew this person this person from India, this teacher from India. And he told me, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. We can hear something, maybe from someone who's um, not exhibiting much sila sometimes, or maybe we don't feel they have much integrity. But sometimes we can take the words in, and because of our own inner purity, or our own inner integrity, we can take that in and really let us serve us on the path. Having faith in our teachers. In the 1970s, um, I signed up for my first month-long retreat after I did a weekend. I was pretty ambitious. (laughs) It was Manindra's first trip to America, And I was really inspired by this little dark, shiny man with what we call a a white... He looked like an ice cream, a vanilla ice cream, (laughs) with the little hat, you know. I asked him one time, how did you get that hat? He said, I made it up. I loved that about Manindra. (laughs) He was just who he was. I had children during that time, but I arranged to have them taken care of at home. And um, I really couldn't attend the whole retreat. I had to go in and out, and uh, I wasn't there for the whole thing, but I did my best. Anyway, I arrived late at that retreat. I was really worn out, preparing everything to be away. I must have, you know, had bags down to my chin. And there was no more room at the inn, so to say, And so uh, they gave me a place to sleep. They gave me a mat and a place to sleep that was next to the bathroom in a hallway. And so, well, it was fine. I accepted it. I was in my 20s then, you know. It was, those were the days. (laughs) I unrolled my mat 
And I had heard so many wonderful things about Manindraji. You know, I kind of was starry-eyed about this teacher. And so I saw somebody coming down the hall, and I knew it was Manindra. He had the white robes and the beautiful, shiny, dark skin. And I thought he was going to approach me and say something so profound. But as I rode out the mat and I looked up, he said something like, is that where you will sleep? And I, I could understand his lilting Indian accent because I come from a family of a lot of accents. And uh, the mind, the, the ear gets attuned. And so he, I said, yes, this is where I'll sleep, just matter-of-factly. And he said, you need good rest. You mustn't sleep there. Take my bed. I'll find another place. Basically, that's what happened. And I was just so flabbergasted that he said that. Right away, it struck me. You know, I I right away had trust in this teacher because of his kindness. And he was so direct and so simple. And in my heart, I said, that's what I want to be like. I'd like to be like that more and more in my life. He was generous. He was just there. He was just really present with what was happening. And I was just starting on the path, and I didn't know anything else, but I could trust him. And it really helped to be inspired by someone as unassuming as that. That was my first feeling, my direct experience of having faith in a teacher. And as I heard the Dhamma from him and then from other teachers, uh, Sayadaw Upandita was my other main teacher in my practice. And my senior colleagues here, Joseph and Sharon, and all the others on the path that I have met, and just seeing the integrity with which they've upheld the Dhamma, which they've carried it through, it constantly inspires me. And um, I'm really glad to... Of course, I can't see these people all the time. It's not, that's not the point. But just to know they exist. Manindra's passed away. Upandita's still alive. And of course, my friends and my colleagues really continue to keep me going, inspired on the path. It's helpful to get connections with people like this who inspire us, um, teachers and friends, our spiritual friendships. I really saw that this was the energy of faith seeking out spiritual friendships. It's not something that, you know, I'm trying to do. It's something that my heart automatically does. Manindraji often spoke of Deepama. Have you read the book? about Deepama? Most of you have. If you haven't, it'll be, maybe it'll be out there. Marianne says, yes. Knee deep in grace. Or it's called differently now, but you may find it. Deepama was one of the students of Manindraji, and she was a relative of his also. She was a housewife and mother, just like myself, a lay person, just like all of you. She wasn't a nun. 
of course, or a monk, of course, that she was a simple person. She had tremendous, tremendous faith in the Dhamma because, not because, but it matched her the tremendous suffering that she had in her life. And perhaps her faith deepened because of that tremendous suffering that she had in her life. She was quite astonishing in her meditative capabilities. Uh, at one point in Manindra's life, he told me, when he first told me stories of Deepama, he admittedly said that Deepama surpassed me in meditative capabilities. He was so humble to say that. She attained levels of enlightenment that, you know, I'd never heard of before. But in those days, it was openly talked about. I always loved the stories that people would talk about in those early years about enlightenment. Stories of housewives and lay people that attained such um, purified states of mind and heart, experienced the Dhamma profoundly to degrees that were unknown to me at that time. The stories that Manindra told of Deepama were told in such a way, not just to me, but to a lot of people, in such a way that if she can do it, you can do it too. It was so matter-of-fact that I didn't have any kind of bumpiness about that at all. I just said, right, I can do it too. No problem. Of course, it's really hard to be on the path. But to have that aspiration was absolutely no problem in my own heart. So it took a teacher in a way, you know, it took somebody like that that tells those kinds of stories, that talks about, you know, the end of suffering, that talks about the unconditioned, that talks about Nibbana, that talks about the end of suffering. And I, you know... In, in the last 10, 20 years, it's kind of getting lost in the shuffle of things. So we want to say those words more in our Dhamma talk, at least. So with growing confidence in ourselves and the teachings and those we can trust, those we really have a heartfelt trust to show the way, we're not just following like sheep, we know we can, we can know the way, we can know that we can trust a person ourselves, not because everybody else is, but because we really feel that trust, that connection in ourselves. That confidence is such a beautiful quality, that seeking out of the good. You all have it. You all can feel it if you can just pause enough between moments of suffering, <laughs> to touch into that place that you've got confidence to go, keep going. Don't let the suffering be a solid wall. We're seeking out virtue. We're seeking out opportunities for practicing generosity, for spiritual friendship, for hearing the Dhamma. Faith brings us to points in our lives where the direction towards wisdom and compassion towards the truth of life 
is so clear that you can't miss it. It's just so utterly clear, that direction of life, that it's like uh, Joseph said, banana or enlightenment. You know, somebody said today, that really struck that person today who told me about it. Like, you know, it's a no-brainer, really. (laughs) (laughs) Or clinging, you know, clinging or enlightenment. Cling to the banana or to the pleasant experience, even spiritual pleasant experiences. It's really clinging to them sometimes. It's really easy to see what the path is to fulfill our aspirations as noble human beings. When we say noble human, human beings, we mean beings who are establishing the path, the Eightfold Noble Path, who really experientially understand the Four Noble Truths and the end of suffering, the Third Noble Truth, which Joseph will speak about. So there are three basic different kinds of faith that I want to talk about. Blind faith, bright faith, which includes uh, mature bright faith, and also verified faith, which leads to unshakable faith. So blind faith. Blind faith is when uh, you're not yet trusting your own experience because you don't really know your own experience. You just kind of have faith in other people's experience. All of you, if not most of you, don't have blind faith because you're really knowing and getting to know your own experience more and more. But those who have blind faith haven't explored the inner terrain enough or deeply enough. So we tend to misplace our trust in others. This is what blind faith is. It's a misplacement of our trust in others. Actually, there's some little faith because we're on the path, but perhaps it's just enough to follow some instructions. Perhaps there's faith in a teacher, but there's too much faith placed in the teacher and not enough in oneself. It's a kind of energy that when one follows the instructions, one just follows them mechanically, not really full-heartedly. There's a dull kind of energy in the present moment. One is pretty casual about the instructions, really not taking them to heart and seeing how they can actually be applied. As a result, because the practice is quite casual, one doesn't recognize what's actually going on moment to moment in oneself. It's just kind of on the surface level, on the conceptual level, on the psychological level, which is all good. But there's something deeper than that to be experienced. When one has blind faith, one is content to hear about the truth or about the spiritual path from others or about others and to live that life vicariously to live that spiritual life vicariously, enjoying what one hears about, just being content with that, being content with like having that kind of spiritual entertainment in a way. We see the light in others, 
we can sing their praises, but that's about all we tend to do, or most of what we tend to do. And there's some kind of deep, maybe there's some deep expectation that we expect to be spiritually carried by that person's transmission, or that person's light, or that person's knowledge, or somehow, you know, that person will take away all the karma we have. Um, that kind of, that doesn't last long. You know, that isn't very deep. That won't carry us very far. In time, we get bored, and it doesn't take us towards anything, towards the end of suffering. It, we feel that we're just going in circles. Manindra would say, when I would have those kind of goo-goo-gaga eyes, oh, Manindra, he's so wonderful, he's so this, he's so that, you know. And um, he would point out to me all the time, you are the one who has to walk the path, not me. And he would say, the Buddha solved his problem, now you have to solve your own, just very directly. He wouldn't take all that adulation from me. I'd go down to sometimes touch his feet like Indians in the Indian culture does. And he'd bend down with me and say, no, 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 he'd pick up my hands and not let me do that. But I, I would persist anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so then there's bright faith. Bright faith is when a person or a place or a reading or we hear something begins to light the flame of possibility for ourselves. Our uh, own inner light, we can feel now, we can see now. We might still be, you know, attending to someone else and using, um, helping, letting them help us in our pa- on our path. But really, we start to see it in ourselves more. And this is a wonderful time for us on the path. I noticed when this happened that I just got more curious about how to get to the end of suffering for myself. Uh, The bright faith for me was many different places in in my path. Even as uh, when I was a practicing Catholic, there were times when I, I saw like an apparition one time and it helped me to understand that there's something beyond this human realm. A lot of people, hundreds of people saw that apparition, not just myself. And then hearing stories about Deepama, this was bright faith. Seeing that other people on the path could actually um, purify their hearts, this was bright faith. So I began to get more curious about how to take the directions, not mechanically, not casually, but really how to apply them in my own practice, in my own life. This kind of faith is ignited by others, but we start to turn our attention to our own capabilities instead of relying on other people's capabilities or their ability to hold us. We start to see the path for ourselves. Oh, this is what leads to the end of suffering. This is what doesn't lead to the end of suffering. And more and more, just by kind of a deep, intuitive 
wisdom, we turn towards what takes us to the end of suffering. And then there's mature bright faith. This is when the courage and the confidence really deepens because we open to very difficult places in our practice. We open to, you know, the four horses pulling us apart or seeing on a very deep level impermanence. And we start to um, touch the places of wisdom, understanding deep wisdom within us. I remember one time going to Seda Upandita, and it was it was a time when I wanted to greet him. And he said something to me, which he had said in different ways before. But when I said to him, I'm so happy to see you, Sayadaw. I'm so happy to see you. And he said back to me something later. The translator said, do you want to know what he said back to you? And I said, I think so. (laughs) He said, Sayadawji said to you, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. Because that's what's going to lead to it's not dependence on him. That was really inspiring of my own path. Along the way, it really helped to get to have Manindra's uh, kind of loving kindness, compassion, the teachings that he downloaded to all of us. And I think many of us were able to take the precision and the strictness of Upandita, the clarity, because we could come to it from that kind of soft, open-heartedness. We didn't have to be so tight around it. I think that's what helped us get through those times. So that's bright faith and mature bright faith. And then there's verified faith. Verified faith is when through our own trials and tribulations we know the way for ourselves. The flame of conviction is not affected by the winds of change, the winds of life. In fact, they're strengthened by it. Confidence, faith is strengthened by when things come and are very difficult, we know we can get through it, we get through it, and we're stronger for it. We respect the value and the light of others and honor that, not putting anything down, anyone down, but we know the path for ourselves. There's no way that somebody could say that that isn't the way because we know that's the way. That's the way to the end of suffering. Verified faith leads to this unshakable faith that as that experiential wisdom that knows the deep truths of life and nothing that arises inside or outside of experience gives rise to doubt this unshakable faith is uh, unshakable faith in the dhamma there's absolutely no doubt in the dhamma or one's ability to experience it nothing can take one off the path of continuing to purify greed, hatred, and delusion in one's heart. It's a long path. 
it's not something that happens overnight. This greed, hatred, and delusion is gradually diminished, gradually uprooted in different stages of the path. Traditionally, verified or unshakable faith means that the unconditioned or nibbana has been realized. That one enters a stream of the Dhamma, one enters the stream of liberation, headed towards complete liberation. The experiential realization of the Four Noble Truths, which includes the cessation of suffering, one experiences the end, the extinction of suffering, even for a few moments, for how long of a period that one experiences it, one really understands experientially that it's possible. In this beginning stage of the stream enterer, it uproots the wrong belief that rites and rituals will bring liberation to the mind. One no longer believes that at all. It uproots the misunderstanding that there is an enduring solid self within or somewhere outside or some place connected from within to the outside. One sees all of life as this, these, all these conditional uh, causes and conditions coming together all the time. Also, in this stage, it finishes off any remaining doubt in the Dhamma. As I said, there is this unshakable faith in the Dhamma, and one is established upon an irreversible path leading to the eventual final and total liberation, the purification of all greed, hatred, and delusion, the uprooting of that in one's heart, in one's mind. There's confidence and certainty in the laws of cause and effect, in the profound understandings of impermanence and the conditional nature of everything, including a sense of self. And that ultimately we understand that we live in this realm of existence where there's um, the nature of life is unsatisfactoriness. There's nothing that we can cling to that will give us enduring happiness. Of course, there is happiness. It comes and goes. We let it come. We enjoy it. We let it go. So the heart and mind are in alignment with profound truths. And one can live in a very deep and quiet place, no matter what's happening outside. The inside can have this deep and quiet ability to be okay with life. There's a possibility for that kind of happiness that is the deepest peace. So these are the teachings of the Buddha that we all live by. This is the trajectory of the path, the direction of our aspiration. If we dare to open to that, to the highest aspiration, and if that's too far beyond any place along the way, just being a better human being is a high aspiration in itself. So I'd like to 
end with a simple poem, a haiku by Isa. Live in simple faith, just as this trusting cherry flowers, fades, and falls. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.